Would you join me in John chapter 15? John chapter 15, and as you're turning there, allow me to pray for us this morning as we turn to God's Word together. Father, we ask for your Spirit's help as we open your Word together. Lord, where you open our minds or open our hearts, may that not leave us feeling vulnerable or exposed. Let us receive of the grace, even as we just prayed for our sister Rachel. Let us receive of the grace that you have for us in your word and through your word this morning. Holy Spirit, help us to set aside where our minds may be racing on the details of the things that we've just heard. Help us to put that aside until we are done here in your word, until you are done with us in your word. God, we want to live for your glory even as we sang earlier. Holy Spirit, help us to do so now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how many of us are gathered here today because you think, I would love to be hated. I would love to be in a place where uh, I can find some new frenemies. I think that this is something we actually naturally avoid. We, we all want to be loved. We, we want to be loved by others. We, we have this natural desire to, when we're in a group of people, kind of find our place, so to speak. But more than that, to have this sense that we've been accepted in that group or by that group of people. Rarely will we even give ourselves or give any time or attention to something where it's like there's this natural opposition there. And yet we live in a world where there is a opposition to the things of our faith. Distortions of God's good design. Isn't it wonderful that when we are together in the church, we are in a place where we are loved by one who is greater than anyone in this building? Let's just consider Jesus' own words from John 15, 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. This is an invitation for all of us to, as we're together, as we're in his word, to abide in his love. And he says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, no matter what we've been facing throughout the week, no matter the rejection that we have sensed from different groups or in our workplace, on our campus, when it comes to our uh, home life, no matter what we faced in those different circumstances, you are now gathered in a place together where you are loved with an eternal love, with a perfect and holy love. But what about those oppositions that we face? I mean, we've, we face some opposition even as I was talking with Danny and Melody, there's some opposition that I face because of my own hard-headedness. We've all heard stories of, of the person who refuses to follow instruction and you end up having all of those parts left over. That, that's an opposition that's not this kind of hatred against you, but it's your own hard-headedness. What about the person that refuses to follow GPS? You know where you're being told to go and yet we refuse to kind of take that way. It's almost celebrated in a way that says, I know better than you, computer, and so I'm going to do it my way. That's an opposition that's more of a, a natural opposition. What about the opposition that we can face in the world today where there's this claim of being on, quote-unquote, the right side of history? Now, my use of that phrase is not intended to take us down a political path. Unfortunately, it is, it is exacerbated in that realm. But let's be honest. That's the political realm, but we face this argument at our own kitchen tables at times, don't we? 
being in the right side of history? What about those convictions that we thought we sought to pray through and that we base on what we see in Scripture through prayer and through the Lord's leading in our lives, and yet we're, we're, we have this finger pointed at us where it feels like someone's saying, you're not on the right side of history of this. And as believers, there are times where we have to make a choice. Do I want to be on the right side of history or the right side of eternity? It's a difficult choice. It's a difficult choice. You know, John, in these last few weeks, as we've been looking at these chapters, he's been bringing us into the dialogue that Jesus had with his disciples the final 24 hours of his life. You know, I have to be honest, church. We're still in a week-by-week leading of what the Lord is calling us to, to look at in his word each week. Next Sunday, we have the privilege of having Juan Hernandez, a longtime friend of us here at Metro Life Church. He's going to bring God's Word from Job chapter 3, but the Lord has been leading us since the beginning of the year, especially during our 21 days, to just take it week by week, what it is that He wants to do in us. I don't know how long this is going to continue. We've begun to kind of sketch out some different ideas for what it might look like, but every week we're coming with these open hands and saying, God, what do you want to do in us? And what it seems that he's been doing in these past weeks is preparing us to follow Jesus and to live for his glory until he returns. And and what's happening in these passages is that he's Jesus is focused on his disciples and, and as such he's focused on us and forming in us into this new community called the church. We're looking at some very foundational things for, the, for these gatherings. And this community that we're gathered together with is going to be recognizable because of the deep love and commitment that we have to one another. The deep love and commitment that we have to obeying Jesus' instructions. And the, and the, the magnificent experience of joy that we have when we're gathered together. But Jesus is preparing us fully. He doesn't leave us wanting. And in our text today, he begins to prepare us for how the world will view this community called the church. So would you join me in reading from John chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, for the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. You know, I think it'd be helpful for us to, to begin this morning with not necessarily a definition of hatred, although we'll get there, but a definition of what we mean by the world. I think it'd be easy for us to, 
to begin to have some misunderstandings that would creep into our mind as we talk about the world. And sometimes this can be in our faith, kind of a catch-all word for, for different things that we experience. So maybe it's helpful to say what is not being talked about here. When we're talking about the world, what we're not talking about is a physical reality. We're not talking about the world as in this tangible matter that makes up reality. A sense that our, our self, uh, the, the creation is itself evil. That, that would actually lead to a distortion of creation and redemption. We're not released from the physical matter of this world. It is the physical matter of this world is redeemed through Jesus Christ. And to get that wrong is actually this form of a heresy called asceticism. We're not called to that. So the world is not this physical matter and reality that we live in today. The, the world does not mean that everyone who is a non-believer. There are things that we face in this life, and it's not the world being opposed to you. Sometimes it's just someone also existing. There are things that we face where there are differences of opinion, differences of strengths and weaknesses, different of gifting and talents and training. Non-believers are not enemies. They are image bearers who are waiting to be loved by a Savior who has come and give His life for them. Maybe, maybe we look at the world and we just say, well, that's secular culture. You can only watch and consume Christian media and go to Christian movies and listen to Christian music and, and eat at Christian restaurants, whatever that means. In, in other words, it's not this hyper-division between what's sacred and secular. It's an understanding of the world that is around us. But what is the world? What, what is the world that is meant here in this passage? Jesus starts with, if the world hates you. What a loaded sentence. What is the world that might be hating us? And why does he say if? Well, let's understand that the world is... The actions that are contrary to Jesus and his good news. The things that are contrary to God and his Messiah, his anointed one given to us. That, that would be, the world would be those actions, those attitudes, those motivations that go against the, create, the creator. That elevate the creation. That's what Jesus means by the world. And Jesus tells us in these first words, actually the first word, he says to anticipate an opposition that we're going to face. Now I don't know about you, but opposition is not what gets me out of bed in the morning. Opposition is going to make me want to stay in bed for the day even more than the rain we've experienced all weekend. Opposition is not something that we seek out as believers. And yet we are called to anticipate this opposition. We are called to be at the ready. We are called to be on both the offensive and the defensive for the things that the world will bring to us. And by Jesus saying that if the world hates you, he is not expressing uncertainty. He's more saying, like, in the unlikely event that the world hates you, the sense is more this, if, and trust me, they will, the world hates you. That's, that's what's being expressed here. But why is it that the world hates Christians? Why would we need to be prepared for this? Well, if the hatred of the world is a certainty... It's a guarantee for those who follow Jesus Christ. We should probably understand the context of what he was speaking to in, in the culture that was of that day so that we can understand how that might even be understood today. 
Christians of the day might have been considered bad citizens because they wouldn't confess Caesar as their Lord. They had some authority that was higher than Caesar, and so there was this sense in, in the, the political culture of the day that they were disloyal and dangerous. I mean, it already sounds like there's application to today, doesn't it, church? There might have been confusion over communion. What are these Christians? Are they cannibals? I mean, they talk about eating a body and drinking blood from a cup in a private meal. Have you ever thought about how strange that can sound to people? Here is the body. Here is my blood. Honey, what are we doing here? Let's get the kids and go. That can be foreign to the world. And yet for us, it's these dear truths that we're called to cling to in these moments as, as being equipped for this opposition. What about those that might have looked at this, this family, this this new family that's formed, like, does that mean that they're against natural families? There's this new family that they have to be a part of as this religion? Are they just tearing down these societal structures? Well, what about this? Like, when they say family, do they mean that in, like, some kind of weird, promiscuous way? Imagine some of the confusion that could have been in the, the culture around them and some of the opposition that they may have faced by using language that is actually biblical, 1 Peter 2 actually says that we have been called out of this darkness, that we've been called to be ambassadors, to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a a family gathered together of the people of God that he has redeemed. So when we use familial language, we're not using the language of the world, we're using the language of the kingdom we've been redeemed into. And it causes us to think differently about those terms and to understand there is good in this for us. But it could also sow confusion into the world. The world around us as they look at these feasts, the way that they greet one another with a, a kiss. Now, I think that the, the greeting one another has, uh, with a holy kiss has been replaced today by the, the side hug of fellowship. Maybe the, the handshake hug with the three pat pat. One of our new members punches me in the arm as a holy greeting, and she's strong. I heard you, Jacqueline. There can be confusion about what we mean in this greeting with one another, this accepting of one another's love for one another. What about looking at the church as doomsday disciples? They're always talking about the end. They're always talking about second coming. And Jesus, in his first coming, is preparing his disciples how to live until the second coming. But there's not doom in that for those who are redeemed. But we have to recognize there is going to be a huge divide between the group of people that regards God as the only reality of life and a group that regards God as totally irrelevant for life. There's bound to be a huge difference. The world dislikes. The world hates things that are different and those who are different. You know, as it's raining today, I was reminded of an illustration I came across in study that almost two centuries ago, the man who invented the first umbrella went out and tried it out on a walk through the streets of London. He soon ran into the hostility of people who didn't want some oddball walking around their streets with his own personal roof on a stick. And the people, in response to this difference, pelted him with stones and rotten vegetables and chased him home. Now, can you imagine London without umbrellas today? No. 
But the truth of the matter is this. The world hates those who are different, especially when it exposes them. Oh, but church, it's not that the world hates you and me. Jesus makes it clear the world hates him. In less than 24 hours from this statement, Jesus will be arrested. He'll be tried for crimes he didn't commit. He'll be beaten, whipped, and executed as a criminal on our behalf. And there's two dangers that we can face as we look at a passage like this. We can think that any inconvenience in the world today is the opposition of the world. Oh, my taxes. The world hates Jesus, that's why I have to pay taxes. The world hates Jesus, that's why I'm being audited. No, maybe you're just bad at your taxes, I don't know. Like, it's possible that we're just facing normal things in life. If you had a bad day and you misinterpreted as the opposition of the, of the world against your Savior, that's a danger for us, that we just take everything and make it the opposition of the world as if, as if we are a victim of the very things that Jesus wants to use to change us into his image. The other danger is this, that nothing is opposition. Because the change that's happened on the inside of you hasn't made it out yet. The change that's going on inside of you isn't actually affecting how you live. And so you're not opposed at all. That's a danger for us. But we have to be reminded that Jesus has called us out of this world. Look at verse 19 with me of John chapter 15. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. We have been called out of this world. Now, sadly, so many given to the desire to be accepted by those around us. And at times, that desire means that we will reject Jesus. Church, beware of wanting to fit in with the world. Be warned with a holy and righteous warning, not from me, but from your Savior here in John chapter 15. Beware of wanting to fit in with the world. See, we, we may not want to stand out, but Jesus says, I called you out. Consider the words that First Peter 2, 9 through 12 say this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim his excellencies, the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why were we called out of this world? So that we could bear fruit different from what others bear, so they and to such a degree that they can't help but notice it. You know, all of us love that, that passage a couple weeks ago about bearing fruit. There's something about it that just feels right, doesn't it? Like, I want my life to be fruitful. And it, it really doesn't have anything to do with our vocation or our bank accounts or anything like that. It, it has more to do with our eulogy than any of those things. We want to have a fruitful life. We want to feel like we've made a difference in this world, don't we? I think everybody has that desire but the question is, do we have that desire to this point that the world won't help but notice that there is something fruitful about your life that exposes the lack of fruit in their own? There's something compelling about this for us as our, in our mission as a church. 
See, fitting in it with the world is the exact opposite of why Jesus chose us, called us, saves us, sends us. It's the exact opposite of that. If fitting in with the world was the goal, Jesus wouldn't have had to come at all. He wouldn't have had to live the life that we can't live. He wouldn't have had to die the death that we can't die. There would be no reason for him to rise again. What is he seeking to overcome? Who cares where he even sits right now? Who cares what he's giving himself to? And yet we realize those things matter. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his seating at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and me right now matters. It gives us hope, gives us strength, it calls us to something, it compels us to live for him. See, before he called us out, we fit in with the world perfectly. But he rescued us. And the purpose of our salvation is wrapped in this, living a life that is distinctive from those around us. We're different. Different in the kind of fruit our lives produce. We're, we're, we're peculiar. There's something intriguing about us. Because of the way that we love, the way that we pray, the way that we obey, the way that we rejoice. To the person that doesn't know Jesus, they may seem unnatural. And even as we saw at the open, may cause the world to hate us. But we serve the one that the world hates. In John 15, 20, Jesus is saying that all of humanity is divided into one of two camps. Those who persecute his disciples and those who listen and obey his word. And this is the way that the disciples are the point of the spear in which Jesus divides humanity. You you and I are the point of the spear for people. Our lives are to expose something. Which camp do you fall into? Do you fall into those who persecute other disciples? Do you mock the convictions of those around you? Let me caution you of that. Do you find yourself where you seem like none of my evangelistic efforts ever matter? Are you living in a way that backs them up? Christians are the point of the spear on which Jesus divides humanity because as we proclaim His words, people are going to respond one of two ways. They're going to receive them or reject them. They're going to receive them or reject them. And you and I are faced with those challenges today, aren't we? To receive or to reject. But see, when we proclaim His words, not our good ideas, not our anecdotes, not our experience, not the way that we think it should work, not our life coaching, not our biblical way of trying to get our own way, when we proclaim His words and they're rejected, They're not just rejecting Jesus Christ, they're rejecting us as the messengers of his good news as well. And this is why he can say, hey, if the world hates you, know that they hated me first. They hated me first. Now we shouldn't think that a bunch of non-Christians should act like Christians. No, the world's going to act like the world. Don't be surprised by that. The world is estranged from God. Don't forget the world's condition and be shocked when they act like it. Verse 21 actually says this, that we are going to face things because of the account of His name. 
Those are the words that are captured there for us. And it, it tells us that the hatred of the world comes to those who actually live for Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? The world doesn't hate undercover Christians. The world doesn't hate undercover Christians. Now, let's not make the hatred of the world a badge of honor. It's not a form of leveling up in our lifestyle for belief. We don't seek out persecution. We don't seek out the world's hatred. What we actively seek, what we actually give ourselves to, what we set our minds to is seeking Jesus. And the more that we do that, the more the world will see it and respond in a negative way. That's what we're called to actively seek. You know, for a few verses ago, we were encouraged to use the master's example of, of being a servant to be released into service, compelled even into the service of others. Now we're being cautioned by a similar message. In other words, this, if I'm persecuted and I am your master, Jesus says to us, you too will be persecuted because you are serving me. But here's the thing, they don't negate one another. If Jesus came to serve and releases us to serve others, we continue to serve even when we're opposed. If we receive opposition because of the way that we, uh, we serve others, know this, that we are actually walking in the way of our master. These are not contrary messages. They're complementary to help us understand how to live for the glory of God. Because Jesus is the one who exposes the world's guilt. Jesus is the one who exposes the world's guilt. Years ago, at the time of the opening up of inland Africa by missionaries, the wife of an African sheep happened to visit a missionary station. The missionary station had a little mirror hung up on a tree outside his home, and the woman happened to glance into it. She had come straight out of an environment where she had never seen some of the paintings on her own face or her hardened features. And now when she saw her own face reflected back toward her, she was startled in this moment. And she asked the missionary, who is that horrible person looking at me inside that tree? missionary said it's not the tree this mirrored glass is reflecting your own face and she couldn't believe it until she was holding the mirror in her own hand and when she understood she said to the missionary i must have this mirrored glass how much will you sell it to me for the missionary didn't want to sell his mirror but she insisted so strongly that in the end he thought it would be better to sell it to her and avoid trouble the price was set she took the glass and fiercely she said, I will never have it making faces at me again. And she threw it down and broke it to pieces. See, the hatred for the world, the hatred of the world for Christians is the woman breaking the mirror that shows her her true reflection. The world feebly lashes out at Christians because of their own guilty conscience. And the righteousness of Christ, the presence of his followers, remind the world around us of guilt and shame. And instead of anger, Christians have regularly expressed sympathy for their tormentors. We say with Jesus, as, as he says in Luke 23, and we're going to look at this on Good Friday, the seven things that Jesus says from the cross. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. We were out with some friends last night. We were at the same concert as Shane. Had dinner with some friends beforehand, and, and at one point the conversation took an unexpected turn, and I became the subject of the conversation, and not in a good way. They were talking about something in my leadership that I would have never understood. 
They said, there are, th- there are times that I think that you've repeated this over and over in your own head so much, and, and you've said it in so many different meetings that you actually start skipping steps and just kind of like giving, giving the punchline, so to speak. So apparently I'll never be on a comedy tour. And I remember saying, thank you. How would I have ever known that I did that if I didn't have friends hold this mirror up for me? I meant that genuinely. You see, when, when we have been redeemed from the guilt and shame of ways that we need to grow, we can be grateful for the mirror. We don't have to throw it down. We can have the shame of those markings removed. We can have our hardened features of our hearts softened. We can embrace the mirror of the Word with joy. It can be something that gives us life rather than makes us want to throw it down in disgust. When that guilt and shame has been removed, we can embrace the calling. I'm at my timer now and we're going to end it here. There's another half a message to go, but I'm getting hungry for some mac and cheese. Here's where we're going to end it, band. Just a heads up, I'm jumping to the close. The more fully, the more we give ourselves to a life abiding in Jesus, what happens with our fellowship in those moments, with one another, and more importantly, with all three members of the Trinity, which we're going to look at a little bit more in two weeks, the more we look to these three members of the Trinity, the more we give ourselves to what they call us up to, the purpose that they've called us out of darkness and the light to which they've called us, the more we give ourselves to those things, the more we find a life that abides in Jesus and the richer our fellowship becomes with Him. The richer our fellowship becomes with the Holy Spirit who's going to point us back to Jesus and He's going to draw us into the presence of God without shame, without guilt. And the more that the gospel takes hold in our hearts, the more that the gospel takes hold in our community groups, the more that the gospel takes hold in the ministries throughout the church, the more we will be outward facing in mission, even as we heard from Shane just a few moments ago, as we look to serve our community. See, the the world doesn't need a church that is inward facing in fear. The world needs a church that is outward facing in mission. That's what we're called to be in this community as we are focused on these three miles around us, as we are deployed throughout the Central Florida region, as we are engaged in international mission, that's the church we want to be. Experience this abiding fellowship and outward facing toward others around us. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves today. Why is it that the gospel of grace, that the good news of unmerited favor toward you and toward me, why would it bring about such violent opposition to it? from religious, from non-religious segments of society. We have to recognize what happens in Scripture over and over again as we see this, that grace disrupts before it redeems. That unmerited favor, it calls us to change, and that's disruptive for our lives as it redeems us. The gospel sabotages any ways that we can say, well, look at all this good that I've done, this form of self-salvation, these works that I can bring to this. No, the gospel elicits violent opposition 
because it is disruptive before it is redemption and because it sabotages any form of self-salvation. Our need is so great that it took the death of the Son of God to save us. The chasm is so wide and the good news is this, that Jesus went willingly and he gladly went to the cross so that we can be outward focused in declaring these truths. Church, the hatred of the world is not better. The way that we live is not better. The things that we are called to are not better. Jesus is better. The love of the world is not better. Their acceptance is not better. Their praise is not better. Jesus is better.